Welcome. You are listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys on this very cold March morning. Um, So thankful that you're with us today. My name is Barrett Bowden. I am lead pastor here at Island Community Church. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful that you've chosen to join us um, this week for worship. And especially if you're new with us, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We love you. God loves you. And I'm so grateful. We are so grateful that you're here with us today. We're going to get to spend time together in God's Word this morning. And so um, what I want to do as we continue worship is just have a time of prayer to invite God to minister to us through His Word And then we'll get started today. Father, thank you so much for the joy that it is to know you, to be known by you, to be loved by you. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We know your word says, in this is love. Not that we have loved you, but that you have loved us. And you gave your son for the propitiation of our sins. So Father, we humble ourselves before you today with a thank you from our hearts and on our lips for your love for us, for your grace toward us in Jesus. God, your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for salvation. Your grace is sufficient for every need in our life. And I thank you that you tell us that you are our shepherd. We shall not be in wanting. So Father, may we sense today that our cup overflows. May we sense that we're eating in your presence, a table that you prepare for us. May we sense your goodness and your mercy surrounding us and following us all the days of our life, including this one. And may we even now find rest and renewal in receiving from you. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit. Today we want to hear from you. We're hungry for you. So I just pray, God, that you breathe life, that you would speak truth to us, that you would breathe life that we so desperately need. We thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to get them open to the book of Romans today. Uh, Today, we are going to get to embark on a three-part study of chapter eight of the book of Romans, which probably, I don't think I'm too far off from speculating that most who have walked with the Lord, who have studied the word, would say this particular chapter is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. Have you ever read Romans chapter eight and feel that way? Yes. Um, It is absolutely 
tremendous, and it is chock full of blessing. Sinclair Ferguson uh, tells a story about a couple of guys that came over from the Czech Republic to the United States. It was their first time into the United States, and they went to like a Walmart supercenter. Y'all ever been to a Walmart? Okay, as an American, you might think just an ordinary day and good old American life, all right? Two guys from Czech Republic walk in the store and do, if you've ever been with International First Time in America and you've been in any supersized supermarket or a store like Walmart, immediately there's this sense of being overwhelmed. And they're just looking around at all of this product that's available in excess and to the nth degree of options within each product category. And the guys in the Czech Republic, as Sinclair remembers the story, looked at him and they were like, uh, is this a government-run store? And Sinclair had to explain, no, this is like, this is just for the public. And they began to cry. And he said, we cannot imagine that all of this would be available for everyone who's a citizen of this country. Do you know how blessed you are? In a similar way, when we get to the book of Romans chapter 8, when we begin to hear from the first verse to the last verse of this chapter, verse after verse, that is just pouring forth of the blessings of the grace of God. Like the guys from the Czech Republic, we should walk around this chapter of a so-called star and look around with amazement, with a sense of awe that all of this is available to everyone who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That all of this is available to every single believer, every child of God. It's an incredible, incredible chapter, and I can't wait to dive in, so I'm going to go ahead and do it right now. The title of today's message is Life in the Spirit. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get them open to the book of Romans, chapter 8, and we start by reading in verse 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if this, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Today, if you're taking notes, and I always encourage uh, you to consider taking notes. I know it may not be everyone's preferred learning style, but find some way this morning to engage with the text. This morning, we're going to be talking about what life in the Spirit really looks like. I know we have a lot of thinkers among us, we have seekers among us, and we even have those who are long-time Christians among us. And it could be a, a question at this point in the book of Romans. We have been studying so much foundational, wonderful gospel truth about how to be put right in relationship with God. The book is all about the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save all who trust in him. But it could be natural. Very obvious question could come was like, how do you live this out, right? So like how... Tomorrow morning, see, see, what you don't know, Pastor Bear, is like, I've got I've to wake up tomorrow morning, and my job sucks. Sorry to use that word. My job stinks, all right? Or I've got to wake up tomorrow morning, and I've got to go to class. And man, I am in a killer season right now, schedule. Or look, you know, after I leave here, you don't know what I'm walking into, like back home. you could easily get to a point as you go through the book of Romans and you go like, where does the rubber hit the road? Yes, I understand this for like long-term eternal salvation things with my life with God, but like how does this change things today or tomorrow morning? Well, in this chapter, Paul really continues. He's begun on this trajectory, but he's really gonna ramp it up here because he's really gonna talk to us about what, every day looks like as a Christian. Two errors in understanding life with God. We've already been looking at these errors in the last chapters. I haven't put it quite like this yet. But as you begin to answer this question, there's two common errors that most people make. On the left, you see license. On the right, you see legalism. You could get to a point 
where you think, well, gosh, this grace, this grace stuff is amazing. And so because God forgives on the basis of grace, then it means like, I can do whatever the world I want to do. We're just human. Let's just keep sinning like everybody else. We're covered by grace. That is a huge error. Paul addresses it. We've already looked at it back in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. Should we keep on sinning? By no means. The other error is on the right. It's the error of legalism that Paul was addressing at the end of chapter 7, what we looked at last week. This idea that somehow, now that you are saved, perfectionism is not only possible but required and you get to a point where you're literally beating yourself up constantly working really hard to basically try to perfect in your flesh what God began in his spirit that is equally wrong and Paul explained to us in the last message we looked at it how we have to constantly depend on the grace of God, not only for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. That yes, the Spirit of God is in us, but there's still a battle in the flesh with sin. So the question is, if we're not to live in license, Paul's explained that, and we're not to live in legalism, Paul's explained that, then how are we to live? What does everyday Look, life look like for a Christian? And how is it possible practically for us to experience more and more and more of God and his freedom? I am so, so stinking excited, all right, about these next few chapters in uh, the, the book of Romans because if you're leaned in this morning and you're really looking for some practical help as to how to live this out day to day, as a follower of Jesus, as one who is saved, then I believe these verses and this chapter are going to be incredibly beneficial to you as we dig into them deeper. Uh, because Paul's going to help us flesh it out. What does life with God look like? This freedom that he's talked about, that Jesus came and purchased for us, how do we actually live in that freedom? What does it look like to live it out day by day? Our main point this morning is this, and if you can't tell by the title of today's message, all right, I'm going to go ahead and give it away. The, the basic answer, all right, to what does life look like as a child of God, as a Christ follower, is it looks like life in the Spirit. It looks like living a Spirit-filled life. Now, we're going to get into practicals of this, but the main point is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live this transformed life. If you want to know how to walk with Jesus, you've got to learn how to walk and step with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who actually empowers us to live the transformed life that God calls us to live. And this looks like God, free from condemnation, and this looks like fulfilling God's law. So we'll look at it more in detail um, but hopefully you can write the main point down. Um, has anybody ever, do we have any space gurus here? 
Okay, good, one person. That is fantastic. Memphis is not known as like a space city, so that was a random chance. But I'm, I see you, and I'm grateful. I'm proud of you. Um, so back in 1998, NASA designed uh, what they called the Mars Climate Orbiter. All right? It was going to be this incredible invention. There's a picture of it. I think this may be manufactured. I'll tell you why in a second, all right? Uh, not, to, not to create conspiracy theories, all right? I'm not in that boat. December 1998, um, they get to the point of readiness to launch. The point of this thing was to get to, to Mars, to try to figure out, to be one of the first spacecraft to get there and to figure out all that was going on, what life was like, what the atmosphere was like, to explore the planet of Mars. December 1998, it launches. It's supposed to arrive. It was December it launched, September of 1999. This is before some of y'all were alive. Don't tell me if that's you, all right? Um, September of 1999, it was supposed to arrive. Well, midway through the journey, here's what NASA realized. <coughs> Houston, we have a problem. All right, I'm pretending like I'm the spacecraft. There's no people on it, all right? They realized, oh my goodness, operational system is flawed. The spacecraft was programmed with the English metric system. The ground control was programmed with the American system. Can you see the potential issues here? Major computation, computational, I can't even say it, which is why I will never work at NASA. Major computational issues. The trajectories got all off between the English system and the American system to the point that when the orbiter went to go into the atmosphere of Mars, it, the trajectories were so far off that it completely burned up. It was a disaster of a project. NASA figured out from this epic failure that in order to have success, there had to be a correct download of an operational system that would actually compute with home base. Would y'all agree with that? It's actually kind of an important part of the whole project. They created two departments to ensure that this kind of thing would never happen again. And sure enough, over time, NASA was able to launch what we know as the Mars Exploration Rovers 2004, then the Mars Science Laboratory 2012. With the right operational system, they were able to get success. Why do I tell you that story? As we think about the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, and we're going to get into the text, I promise this is not going to be a sermon based on NASA stories, all right? If you know me, I don't tell a lot of stories. But it's essentially as if, see, as soon as sin enters into our lives, our operational system gets completely jacked up. Like completely messed up. 
Like things don't compute between us and God, our home base. The trajectory of our life is far off. And where it leads inevitably, in little by little moments, and ultimately, if it's not corrected, into death itself. Where it leads, little by little, and ultimately, is to disaster. The only way for success, for fruitfulness, to come from our lives is for there to be a complete rewiring of our operational system. Things have to completely change in us so that there might be an opportunity to compute with home base, God. And one of the things that Jesus does when he comes is he comes, yes, to give his life for us, but also to put his life into us. And he does that by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, our thinking is rewired. Our hearts are rewired. Our very bodies are rewired. The trajectory of our life changes because now we have connection, a restored connection. We have something that will compute with God. The Holy Spirit completely transforms our lives. And today we're going to be talking about how the Holy Spirit gives those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ a new operating system. And we're going to be looking at some of the practicals of this as we go through the chapter. But I'm so excited to talk about it because this chapter is all about the Holy Spirit. Now, if you think back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, what we know is that God had always promised with the coming of the Messiah to do something in us that we could not do for ourselves. We needed a re-hardwiring. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them, God says, one heart and a new spirit. Y'all see it? A new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to do something new and I'm going to put my spirit in them and they're going to be different. He repeats in Ezekiel chapter 36, 26, God says, and I will give you, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. With the arrival of Jesus, all believers now enjoy a new age marked by new life in the Holy Spirit. And in this chapter, you guys, 19 different times, the Holy Spirit is referenced. So this is a, if you, if you want to know, sometimes we hear phrases and the, as we study the Bible, as we hang around Christian circles, you might hear the phrase, the spirit-filled life, all right? What does that mean? We're going to be talking about it as we go through this chapter. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what has the Holy Spirit been gifted to do 
in our lives as we trust in him. Well, there's three aspects to a spirit-filled life. We're going to be looking at these three this morning. And we're going to start with number one. If you want to know the spirit-filled life, first, you've got to know something that the Holy Spirit is given to do. And that is to bring assurance into your life. We could call this the freedom of the spirit. All right? So number one, the Holy Spirit brings assurance into your life. He brings freedom, the freedom of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1. Would you all read this with me? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Of course, the word therefore is referencing back to pretty much everything that Paul's been talking about since chapter 3, verse 21. All right? He's saying In light of all of this, what you now need to know is there is therefore now, what? No condemnation. No condemnation. Now, I want you to make a note of this phrase, all right? Because it's a legal term. Essentially, it means free from debt. Another way you could... Understand it is it is free from penalty. Yet another way you could understand it is no one has a charge against you. Okay? Free. Free from debt. I'm free from penalty. Not a single one has come up to accuse me. There is therefore now no condemnation. It's a legal term. It's like a sign hanging over your head. Not condemned. Now what's so interesting about this particular phrase is it's almost, it's not almost, it is the exact flip side of Romans chapter 5, verse 1. All right? So you who love studying the Bible, and I think that's all of you. Therefore, y'all remember verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, all right? So 5.1 is basically stating it positively, whereas 8.1 is stating it negatively. We've been justified through faith. We've been made right with God legally. So we don't fear judgment. It's essentially the same thing. And you guys, this is incredible. Because what he's saying is, in light of all that God has done for you in Jesus, God has nothing against us. He finds no fault in us. There's nothing to punish us for. Now how do you, how is this? Paul reminds us. For... The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. In other words, God has brought a freedom to your life by the power of his spirit. He has done something for you. We call this series what he's done. He has done something for you that you could never do for yourself. He has set you free in Christ Jesus. How did he set you free? 
For he has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. In other words, there was nothing wrong with the law. What was wrong was our ability to keep the law. We looked at this last week. The law shows us what is good, what is of God, what is perfect, what is righteous, what is holy, what is good. But our flesh, we were never able to keep it because of our sin, our rebellion against God. We realize we are not righteous. The law is like a mirror into our lives. And it shows us our brokenness and our need. But the law cannot clean us up. The law can't save us, but God has done this. He has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh, he came fully God and fully man. He came to take our place and for sin. That's what he's saying, substitutionary savior. He came to make atonement for us. He condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Whose flesh is this? Is this your flesh? Or is this Jesus' flesh? The answer is it's Jesus' flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin, your sin. Sin is owed condemnation. But Jesus came as a substitute in your place and God condemned your sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you guys, honestly, when you look at the original language, it's hard. Again, there's sometimes, very rare times in English where just the full strength of a phrase is not conveyed. But this phrase, no condemnation, we defined it earlier. But the emphasis in the original language is that it's gone forever. It's completely Done. It's like it does not exist at all. It's not like you're moved out of condemnation for a little while, but be careful because you might end up moving back in. No, it's not like that at all. It's like when you are in Christ Jesus, the, this freedom from condemnation is not just for now, it's for all eternity. Um, y'all have heard of double jeopardy in our court system? Fifth Amendment, right? You can't be tried twice for the same crime. If you're not aware, that's double jeopardy. This is a flawed analogy, but in some ways it's like that. Like all of the punishment for our sins has already been put on trial and Jesus took our condemnation. And he took it in full until the cross. He said in Greek, it is finished. It's done. That is a declaration for now and for all eternity. And your sin can't be tried twice. It won't be. 
that condemnation that was poured out on Jesus will never be poured out on you. The penalty that he paid, it's done. You will never bear that penalty ever, ever, ever. How wonderful is it that God declares over our lives no condemnation now and forever. This is huge because um, there's a lot of us who I think, I wonder, if we live our life kind of wondering, if we fear condemnation will come back, if we think this phrase applies somehow to our past, but we're not sure if it applies to us today, or if we're not sure if it will apply to us tomorrow. And we have to hear this verse speak to us. This is for all time. There will never be any condemnation of us. We are accepted. We are welcomed. We are loved. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. For the law, the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Every time I read this verse, um, I don't know why. Maybe this is a guy thing. Maybe it's a guy and a girl thing. I don't know why. I picture in my head, I don't know why, it's just from the very first time I ever read the book of Romans, I have always pictured a flag flying over my head, like a, like a fort. Y'all have heard the story of Fort Sumter and how the Star Spangled Banner got written like a victory flag. I have always like pictured, and I don't know why this is the way, but this is just works for me. I have pictured this flag like flying over my head that where it's written on it, no condemnation. And it's like the strings to the flag in my mind are cut off to where you can't lower it anymore. It's just the way it is. Like the flag has been hoisted above my life. No condemnation over this guy, arrow pointing down at me. And the strings are cut like I can't take it down. Nobody can take it down. It's just there. It's a new status wrought by the Holy Spirit in my life. By the grace given God, he has welcomed me. He has accepted me. He has forgiven me and he has freed me and he loves me. And now there is a big banner flying over my life, not condemned. He is loved. And it's an unchangeable reality. Uh, I used to work for a company. We used to manage the Olympic torch relay. This is a long lifetime ago. It feels like I remember on, if this analogy works for you, then maybe you could use it. I remember, so we were charged with getting the torch from Greece, the eternal flame, the Olympic flame lives in Greece. Once the torch gets lit, essentially it was our job to manage the logistics for this worldwide tour. Sometimes it was just within a country, but essentially you could never allow that flame to go out, all right? And we freaked out constantly. Like our worst fear as a company on our team was that somehow that flame would go out because if it goes out, then you're not dealing with the real Olympic flame anymore. You're dealing with, you know, your big lighter flame. And that's not nearly as cool. People want to see the original flame, right? 
And so we were constantly stressed out. They made these special boxes. Kid you not, we'd put the flame while it was still on, on airplanes in these special boxes. It was insane the length that we went to to make sure that that flame never went out. And I think some of us in our lives as Christians are constantly freaked out and fretting that somehow the flame of the Spirit of God in our life will go completely out. But I'm here to tell you that once God makes you new and puts his spirit in you, that flame will never go out. The flame of his love for you, the flame of his presence in your life, the flame of his welcome in you. Yes, there are things we can do to get more of God and things we can do to get less of God. But in terms of you belonging to God, you are God's, you are God's, you are God's. He loves you, he welcomes you, he forgives you. There is no condemnation over your life and it is that way now and forever. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful? And we have to remember this because if we don't, if we don't remember that this is true forever, then here's what will happen. We'll inevitably, unnecessarily end up in places in our life where we are feeling more guilty than we should or more unworthiness or pain that we should. This is Paul writing this. Paul oversaw the death of Stephen, one of the incredible men of Jesus, incredible men of faith, incredible leader in the church. Paul put him to death. Paul actively opposed and persecuted people who are in Christ Jesus. Do you think he could struggle with guilt? Do you think he could struggle with his past? Do you think he could struggle with pain? Or a sense of unworthiness? Of course he can. But do you think, Paul's sitting there thinking, I need to pay God back for my past? No. Here he is saying, there is therefore now no condemnation over my life and for, over your life, for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. This is the most amazing thing. God has set us free. If you forget, you'll feel unnecessary measures of drivenness or perhaps even defensiveness. Drivenness because you'll constantly think, I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove to other people. I've got to prove to God that I'm worthy. But the cross and this banner of no condemnation puts an end to that kind of drivenness because there's nothing left to prove. God has already proven his love for you and it's not based on anything you add to the equation. It's based on his work on your behalf. Aren't you grateful? Or defensiveness. Some of us have incredible oversensitivity to criticism. I struggle with this. I'm a words person. I can, I can be really, my day can be ruined if you say the wrong thing to me. You give me a compliment, you'll make my day. But the reality is we should not be overly inflated or overly deflated by the way that other people talk to us because our value and acceptance and welcome and love doesn't come from how other people think of us. 
It comes from how God thinks of us. And he loves us. And he welcomes us. He receives us and accepts us. There is no condemnation over our life. And we got to remember it. You agree? If you don't remember it, you can end up feeling a lack of confidence or like in your relationships or even a sense of insecurity. You could be prone to codependency on other people or get into some kind of addictive behavior. And God's saying, don't do that. I love you. I welcome you. I have accepted you. There is a banner flying over your life of no condemnation for you have been set free in Christ Jesus. Or perhaps, if you forget, you could even end up in a place where you lack motivation. Sometimes, when we don't understand that God receives us just on the basis of his work for us and his love for us, we end up in a place where we think we've got to obey God out of fear. We've got to obey him out of duty. But friends, the motivation for obedience to God is not fear. It's not duty. It's love for God. It's gratitude for God. It's a joyful response to God and his welcome of us. And our whole motivation to live a surrendered life to have self-control is over our desire to be near to the one who came near to us. So friends, rejoice with me. We have to remember that we are accepted. We are welcome. There is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, we made it very far. We got through one verse. All right? Where does this lead? What are the results of this freedom? Well, we saw in verses three and four that there's really two results. The first result, which I've been harping on extensively, is this one, that it gives us an opportunity to live with him. It gives us an opportunity to feel his welcome and his love, his acceptance of us to live forgiven. But the second opportunity, which I want to get into next as the text moves forward, was highlighted there in verse, the end of verse 4, which says, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Which tells us that Jesus came not only to forgive us so that we might be with God, but he came to purify us so that we might Live for God so that we might grow in his likeness. Another way I could say it is Jesus came not only for your salvation, but also for your sanctification, all right? He came not only for your redemption, he also came for your restoration. So what we're going to be looking at as we move forward is the second aspect of this, the spirit-filled life. And by the way, before I move on, I want to ask you, do you struggle with assurance Honestly, just a brief moment of self-reflection. Is, is, is there an opportunity, before we move to this second section, for you to say, God, I want more of your Holy Spirit because I, I, I'm reading here and I'm believing you here. That you've given the Holy Spirit into my life that I might be free. 
that ongoing insecurity of where I stand with you. That I might have deep fulfillment knowing that I am yours. That I might know that I know that I know that I am welcomed, that I am loved, that I'm accepted. That could be something you lean into out of this message today. Is praying for the Holy Spirit to give you assurance. That would be a good prayer to pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you assure me of God's love? And would you give me freedom? Number two. The the second aspect of a Spirit-filled life that I want to look at together is how the Spirit brings more and more grace into our life. All right? And we're going to be talking here about the mindset of the Spirit. The mindset of the Spirit. The question I want to ask here is, how do we operate with with our freedom toward God in sanctification? In other words, what is a path toward real change? What are some practical things we could lean into? And here in this section, what I want to show you is that God gives us a playbook for how to really walk into greater degrees of grace in our sanctification journey. And this playbook involves your mind. Okay? There is a work that God wants to do by his spirit in your mind. There's a renewal that has got to happen in your mind. And he's given his spirit to do it, but you've got to cooperate and yearn for his spirit that it might be done. Now, by mindset, here's what I'm talking about. Literally, our word mindset comes out of to set the mind. Okay? Okay? So essentially what we're talking about here is we're saying we, there's, there's something that we've got to be putting our mind toward. There's a direction that our mind has got to go. If we want to live out the spirit-filled life, our minds have to go a certain direction. There's, there's something that we are called to think about, to dwell on, to focus ourselves on. Um, Mind your business is something we say sometimes. To mind something means to focus on it, right? So there's something we've got to focus on. Now, there's two possible mindsets that Paul reveals here in the text. Verse 5. See if you can spot them. For those who live according to the what? Flesh set their minds on what? The things of the flesh. But those who living according to the Spirit, they set what? That's right. Well, I've just done something where I've lost my pen. Don't you love it when that happens? There it goes. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So here, you've got option one, a mindset toward the flesh, and you've got option two, a mindset toward the spirit. So there's two possible mindsets. The flesh and the spirit. And these two possible mindsets have two possible outcomes. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. But to set the mind on the spirit is what? Life, my peace. So, you've got two possible mindsets 
and two possible outcomes. To set the mind on the flesh is death. And to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now, Paul continues by personifying these two mindsets with actual people. There's two types of people. There's people who have their minds, they go about their day, and what they're thinking about primarily is not God or the things of God or the Spirit of God. What they're thinking about is themselves. And he describes these people as on, having ongoing hostility toward God. In other words, in their heart, they're the, they're the, the people like Romans 1, they suppress the truth. They're actively exchanging the truth about God for lies. They're actively choosing the things that are not of God over the things that are God. They're choosing the created things and not the creator. This is those who are ongoingly hostile toward God. He says in verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Conversely, there's another kind of person. There's a person who goes about their day, and they're not thinking primarily about themselves, they're thinking about God. They've chosen to put their mind onto him. They're not thinking, how can I satisfy myself? But they're thinking, how can I surrender to God? How can I live in his desires, his ways, his power? And for these people... The outcome is an indwelling peace. He says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, what he's trying to say here, he's writing to the church in Rome. And what he's saying is, as he's reading the letter out, he's going, I'm talking to a group of believers here. And I'm saying, this is you. Like, you're not of those who have the mind toward the flesh. God has made you new. Does the Spirit of God live in you? If the Spirit of Christ lives in you, then you are no longer of the flesh, but you are of the Spirit. Now, this is not meant to make you insecure about does the Spirit of God dwell in you unless you know that you know that you haven't repented of sin and you haven't surrendered to the Lord Jesus and you haven't been made new? In which case it should convict you and it should lead you even now, today, to get right with God. Because no one is saved by sitting in church. Nobody is saved by doing religious things. Nobody is saved by being from a Christian family or in an American nation. The only way you can be saved is through Jesus Christ. You need the Spirit of God to make you new. But the assumption here is that you know that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to everyone who is of him. You, however, oh, excuse me, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him and he dwells with you and he will be with you. What he's saying is that, listen, 
you have the Holy Spirit. The indwelling Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So if you are in Christ, then you are in God, and you are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. You have the Holy Spirit. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you are called to set your mind on the Spirit. It all comes down to a mindset. So Paul's basically saying, there is a tight connection between how you think and how you live. Let me say it again. There is a tight connection between how you think and how you live. And God wants to change how you think. And as you walk with him, and as you live with him, and as you surrender to him, one of the works of the Holy Spirit in your life is to give you a renewed mind that is toward Christ. And you can pray for that. And you can yearn for that. Now, what does a mind of the Spirit look like? <laughs> well, we set our minds to the gospel. He loves me. He accepts me. He welcomes me. And this is a, a forever thing. He's basically saying, you set your mind back to verse 1 of chapter 8. And to all the things that we've talked about. And prayed through in the last months from this book of Romans. This is repeated in other places in the Bible. Like in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 3. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Then seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above. Not the things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, he's saying from this passage, what do you set your mind to? He's saying set your mind to your Savior, Jesus. On a practical, day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, there's a work that God wants to do, and he's asking you to cooperate with in your mind. He wants to renew your mind such that your first thought in the morning is Jesus. It's not yourself, but it's Jesus. He wants to renew your mind so that when you get in that argument this afternoon, your first thought is Jesus. He wants to set your mind such to where when you start that lab or that exam this week, your first thought is not how you're going to perform on the test, but how he has performed for you. He wants for you to think of him. And he wants for you to think of his grace towards you and his gifts towards you and your life with him and his promises that are all yes and amen towards you. He wants you to have a new mindset. And he came for this reason that you might experience a renewed mine. If you go back to verse 6, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but if you look at it in your Bible, before I move on to our last point, I want to just make very clear, whatever preoccupies the mind, what we're saying, it's going to control your life. Tight connection. Y'all hear me saying this over and over and over? 
Some of us are frustrated with how we find ourselves living, a tight connection between how you're thinking and how you're living. What preoccupies your mind is going to overflow into your life. Can I say it again? Tight connection. Verse 6. One set on the flesh results in death, and the other results in life and in peace. And by death, he's not just talking about eternal, physical, spiritual death, but he's also talking about, y'all, just day to day. When you set your mind on the flesh, what do you experience? Brokenness, right? You experience maybe it's a momentary happiness, but ultimately it's going to be a real frustration and a sense of futility. Whereas if you set your mind on the God, the promise there, verse 6, is life and peace. So um, let's say, let's take negative emotions, right? And let's work these things out. So let's say you're becoming extremely anxious about something. It's obvious to care about things. But anybody ever been consumed by anxiety? So there's something to be done in the mind, something the Holy Spirit wants to do. What he wants for you to do is rather than your worry become debilitating, he wants for you to remember to set your mind not on the thing that's causing you stress, whether it's a loved one or a project or a circumstance or a season, but he's wanting you to set your mind to him. I love you. You are my child. I am in control of all things. I have promised to do good to you. If an earthly father knows how to do good, how much more will your heavenly father take care of you in this moment? Trust me. One leads to a kind of death, an anxiety that literally chokes life out of you and debilitates you. The other leads to a kind of realized, increasingly realized peace, a surrender, a simple childlike faith and trust that frees you and fulfills God's promise, which is to bring life to you. Think of another one. Um, where you feel guilty or you feel unworthy. And you got a choice to make, right? Do you just keep on taking on more things? I'm just going to say yes to more things. They asked me to do it, and I really want this person to like me. I really need to prove myself. So I'm going to just keep on saying yes until you're literally experiencing death, a crushing number of responsibilities because you're trying to, to prove yourself or you're trying to make up for some wrong, rather than set your mind to the things of the Spirit, remembering that even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater, and he receives us, and he accepts us, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what he has done. Do you see the difference? Practical living day by day, you have a choice. A choice to set your mind on the flesh or a choice to set your mind on the spirit. And God wants to work in you to set your mind to him. 
The last point this morning, and I close with this, is the third aspect of the spirit-filled life is that the spirit brings power. Not only does the spirit of God bring assurance, not only does the spirit of God bring grace, increasing grace as you set your mind to him. And by the way, just like last time before I moved to this third point, if you're here today and you know right now that your mind has been more preoccupied with the thoughts of yourself or your circumstance or decisions that are upcoming or your favorite Netflix show or your Facebook feed or whatever social media you're on, if you've What is consuming your mind? I'm asking this. What is consuming your mind? Because what is consuming your mind will control your life. There is a tight connection between how you think and how you live. And so I'm asking you today, will you be honest? If things of the flesh are consuming your mind, this morning you need to repent. And you need to invite the Spirit of God to take control of your mind to renew your mind and to captivate your mind with the things of him being far superior than the things of flesh. And you will experience life and peace. And that's a promise. Number three, and I close with this. We experience not only assurance, not only grace, but also power. And here we're talking about true life in the spirit. What's amazing is, if you look at verse 10, and we close, look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, what he's saying is, do you realize that the same spirit that woke up the dead body of Jesus from the grave and brought life to him that has not faded to this day, glorious, eternal, triumphant, resurrected life. Jesus is alive. Anybody grateful for that? Anybody deny Jesus is alive? No, I mean, I don't think anybody here, right? He is alive from the dead. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to life is now in you at work to bring life to you from your dead mind and your dead heart and your dead body. He is at work in you. Aren't you grateful? He lives in you. And he lives in you for two things. One is for a future thing, a future reality. He lives in you so that you know that you know that you know that even though your body will die one day physically unless he comes first, He will resurrect your body to be like his and you will be with him forever. A future reality, he has put death away. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Though the outward nature is wasting away, the inward is being renewed day by day, and even though I one day will die to depart 
And be with Christ is far better because to be absent from my physical body is to be present with the Lord. And there is coming a day that God will raise even my actual physical body back to new life, a resurrected life in the way that Jesus was raised from the dead. I will also be raised with him. Therefore, I have no fear of death because I will be with him forever. And you should have no fear of death either. The spirit of God who raised Jesus to life has now raised you to life in your spirit and one day will raise your body if Jesus does not come first. If your body goes into the ground, Jesus will raise your body to newness of life. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful for the grace and the power of the spirit of God who dwells in us? Not only does he empower a future reality, but he also empowers a present responsibility. This is the closing point. The future reality is that he has put death away, but the present responsibility right now, today, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow night, and for all the days to come, there is a present responsibility. Yes, he has put death away, but we are called to put sin away. He says in verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, then you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. This is the verse that John Owen famously commented on when he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. In other words, there's a present responsibility that we have to to just kill sin, to resist sin, I've said here. It means like a a full-hearted resistance. Like it's not like, you know, I don't know. It's like, no, I'm putting on my boxing gloves, yo. Like sin becoming to me and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just sit back like, you know, whatever, you know, somebody coming at me swinging, I'm putting on my gloves. I'm not talking about an actual physical fight. I, I'm talking about with sin, all right? This is a metaphor, all right? I'm just, so with sin, it's like I'm putting on my gloves. Like we're going down here. I am not, I am not just gonna be apathetic towards sin. The word here in Greek, put to death, it's violent and it's total. It means we reject everything that we know to be wrong. We absolutely say no to sin. We declare war on pornography. We declare war on addictive behaviors. We declare war on anything in our life that is leading us away from God. Because we know that the end of that stuff is death, but God brings life and peace. So we say no to the things that we know destroyed Christ in his flesh. We say no to the things that he died for. We say no to the things that he wants no place in our life because we have a savior who loves us and wants the best for us. Thus we say no to sin. We don't play games. We get as far away as possible. We don't just avoid the things we know are sin. We avoid the things we know could lead to sin. And we even avoid the things that we're not even sure, but they could lead to sin. Because we don't 
want any business with that which our Savior died to put away. Y'all agree? We resist sin. Secondly, we remember the gospel. We say yes. We, see, to find victory over sin, and I've taught this so many times, and I'm, I'm going to close here. I've taught this so many times. There's a no and a yes. To find victory over sin, you have to say no to sin. But it's not enough just to say no to sin because what's under the sin is some motivation that you have to figure out how to quench in the Spirit of God. What is driving you toward pornography? Is it guilt? Is it loneliness? Is it just a need to feel happy for a moment? What is driving you toward that codependent relationship that you know is not leading to life? What is driving you toward whatever it is that you struggle with? Underneath is a heart longing to be fulfilled. And what you have to do is remember the gospel. Yes, you say no to the pornography or no to the codependency, but you at the same time have to find fulfillment in Jesus. Because if you don't find fulfillment in Jesus, your flesh is going to be so overly tempted toward that thing because there's something motivating your behavior. And it's your heart, your wandering heart. And your wandering heart belongs to Jesus. And so you've got to choose to say no to sin, but you also have to choose at the same time to say yes to Jesus. Like Lion King. Y'all ever seen the movie Lion King? Remember who you are. Y'all remember, this is my favorite line in the whole movie. Remember. You have to remember who you are. You are a child of God. You are loved. You are welcome. You are accepted. What are you doing making mud pies in the slums like C.S. Lewis said when you've been offered a holiday at the sea? Say no to the mud pies, but at the same time say yes to what Jesus offers you that's far better. I close with a story. It's a story that comes from our own church family, a story of a family that's been involved with their extended family in foster care and adoption. I tell you this story um, secondhand, but they described how kids... Many of us understand, some of us don't, what it looks like to grow up in a home that's really broken, that's like really messed up, or you don't really know. Um, you don't know a lot of things. You don't know if you're safe. You don't know which guy or which girl's coming to sleep in mom or dad's bed that night. You don't know what they're going to say, what they're going to do. You don't know how you're going to get to school perhaps the next day. And for many, you don't even know what you're going to eat for the next meal. This family engaged in foster care and adoption told a story about a group of kids from a family that got received into their home. They were so happy to just have them. This is what they were called to do to extend the love of God in that way. And they just received them into their home. And they had this this big bowl of fresh apples that they put out in the living room. And I'm talking like 10, 20 apples at a time would be out there. And the mom started noticing that 
She'd put out 20 apples in the morning, but by the end of the day, they're all gone. And she found it a little curious, wondering, what in the world? Why are these apples keep... There's only three kids. There's no way they're eating 20. And what she realized is over time, she was making up the bed one day and the kids were taking the apples and they were hiding them in their mattress, under their mattress. All they had ever known was food scarcity. And so even though they had been welcomed into this family, of abundance, they were still living as if they were in total need. She had to talk with them and go, hey, you don't have to like take the apples and hide them. Like You're not in a place of scarcity anymore. You're in a place of abundance. Why are you behaving like that? That's the old home. We know psychologically, sociologically, what's going on with the kids, but that's the old way, but you... you this is our home, and you'll never run out of apples here. You never have to take them and hide them. They'll always be provided plentifully. I think sometimes in our lives, we operate as if we're still in Egypt when God has given us the promised land. And we, and we dabble in things from the past when God's like, wait, wait a second, like, don't you see, like, you're in a place of abundance. Why are you still living like that when I have offered you this? Come and eat. Be fulfilled. Experience true life in my spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation over you. I love you. I welcome you. I've accepted you. I gave myself for you. Set your mind into me and experience as you do that your life beginning to change. A life that's described only by the power of my spirit, making all things in you new. Father, thank you for this word. And I just pray, God, that today in some way, the words from your word that have been spoken would take root and bear fruit in our lives. I pray, God, that if there's anything in our hearts and lives that we need to repent of, that we would do it. For some of us, for the first time, calling on you for salvation, even now, oh, Father, would you make them new? For some of us, just taking time to just recognize I've been living out of insecurity when you offer me assurance, and we just want to pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you give us freedom and confidence in you. For some of us, our, our minds have been so consumed with other things that are not of you, and this morning you want us to just cry out to be Oh, God, would you just consume my thoughts toward you? Would you help me to think of you and your love and your welcome of me? May that consume my life. And for some of us today, we're still dabbling with things from the past when you've offered us so much more in the present in your son, Jesus. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us of the sins that, Lord, we have given ourselves to you. And fill us afresh with a, a new desire for life in your spirit. Give us joy that is beyond anything that we could turn to in this world. Satisfy us in your love. May we make war on sin. And at the same time, may we 
run to you. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.